The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 10. I'll be reading in Danish. The English translation will be on the screen as I read. Den ros skal I have, at I husker mig og holder fast ved den undervisning og vejledning, som jeg modtog fra Kristus og gav videre til jer. Jeg vil gerne, at I skal forstå, at ligesom Kristus stod til ansvar over for Gud med sine ord og handlinger, stod sådan står en hver mand til ansvar over for Kristus, og en gift kvinde står til ansvar over for sin mand. Hvis en mand tildækker sit hoved, når han bærer eller han profeterer, bringer han skam over Kristus. Men en kvinde, hvis hun ikke tildækker sit hoved, når hun bærer eller profeterer, bringer hun skam over sin mand. Hvis en kvinde ikke tildækker sit hoved, er det lige så slemt, som hvis hun får sit hår klippet af. Siden det er upassende for hende at få håret klippet af, må hun forstå, at hun bør tildække sit hoved, når hun bærer eller profeterer. En mand bør ikke tildække sit hoved, for han er skabt i Guds billede og til Guds ære, men en kvinde er skabt til mandens ære. Manden blev jo ikke skabt ud fra en kvinde, men kvinden blev skabt ud fra en mand. Manden blev heller ikke We continue our series through the book of 1 Corinthians and for the most part we have been going chapter by chapter. One of the things I did uh, for Easter was to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 15. And we went through that chapter for the last three Sundays because it dealt with the resurrection. And since we're still in Easter season, that was a fitting way to do it. And the way, really the way that uh, First Corinthians is broken up, there's different kind of topics that he's taking on as it relates to this local church. So now we have gone back uh, with today's sermon to chapter 11. So that's where we left off before we jumped ahead. And so for the next several Sundays, we're going to go from chapter 11 through 14, and then end with chapter 16, uh, which will be at the end of June. And then in July, we go back to uh, an annual series that we usually do, Summer in the Psalms. We do about 10 Psalms a summer, so in July, we'll start that again. I believe we're going through Psalms uh, 71 through uh, 80. Now, uh, one of the things that I did was uh, not look ahead to the normal calendar to see what kind of things were going on when I made this switch. And so today's passage is about head coverings uh, for women, and it's Mother's Day. And uh, I didn't note today that there's, there's more women than usual that have hats on. I understand that uh, there's a, a deaconess, a sister in Christ, that organized this uh, event. And uh, all I can say is I deserve it. Like, I deserve... I deserve everything that I get today for, for not noting that this passage is landing on Mother's Day, so I'll, I'm just going to take it and, and smile uh, because I deserve it. But one of the things uh, to note uh, with this passage in particular is this is, this is a, a notoriously hard passage to understand, and it's good to always know that Paul wrote this letter to a real church with real people in an ancient city called Corinth where there was a new local church. And he's referencing many things, often without explanation, because his original readers who would have heard this letter would know exactly what he's talking about, but we have enough cultural distance that sometimes we have no idea what he's talking about. So most people who study this passage uh, that I've read this week always caution to have something called exegetical humility when approaching this text, that there's only so much we can know, a lot of it's taking some guesses, uh, and so that's what we're going to do. So in celebration of that, I did bring up one of my favorite coffee mugs just to remind you of my approach today. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. So that's kind of what we're up to today. We'll see, we'll see what happens, all right? 
Uh, the only other thing I'll say before I pray is a, a text like this that deals with uh, issues of like gender, male, female, uh, men, women, it always brings up more questions than I could possibly ask uh, in a, a sermon if I want to at a uh, manageable time limit. So more than likely, you're going to have a question that I do not engage in this message. And more than likely, it was a question that was on my radar, but I just had to intentionally cut it out for the sake of time. So if that's you and you have some things that you want to keep talking about, like I would encourage you to ask others that you're in Christian community with, uh, reach out to me, because again, more than likely, I was like, yeah, I wanted that question to be in this message, but I just couldn't couldn't put it in there for the sake of time. So let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering of saints. Thank you for the brothers and sisters here that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, renewed in his resurrection, and now are here to focus on him and his word, and to encounter once again the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. So we lean into your word, Lord, knowing that even with something that is as confusing as this text, Lord, there's principles, there's things that you have to say for us right now and how we gather as Christians, as, as we learn what it means to be men and women of faith and how to relate to one another and how to carry out your purposes in a distinct way in this world. So Lord, be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I know my opening question is, is this the worst Mother's Day text ever for a sermon? And there could be an argument made that it, it, it is, because as I said, this text is known for being incredibly difficult to understand, and it has some curious things to say about women, head coverings, and the relationship between men and women. And in this text, the emphasis is mainly on women, but that is because of a specific historical reason that's unique to this local church in Corinth. Throughout the letter, Paul is addressing specific matters in this lo local church with, within a specific time. But even though this text is dealing with a specific debate that applies uniquely to women in Corinth, it's not an exclusive text for women, but applies to everyone. As Paul often does throughout this letter when he's been dealing with issues of marriage, sex, and gender, he makes it about both men and women, since we're all united in Christ, carrying out his mission together in the fellowship of church life. So I'm going to ask a different question, not is this the worst Mother's Day text ever for a sermon. I'm going to ask the question, should we place one of our elders under church discipline because of the way he presents himself at church? So this is what I mean. Here's a picture of one of our elders. He's a new one. This is Mike McRoy, if you don't know him, so I don't want this just to be insider stuff, so let me introduce you to Mike. He's a, he's a coach uh, and works for Bethel University. You see him sporting, pun intended, uh, some Bethel uh, sports gear right there. And uh, one of the things that you see is like Mike is not only wearing a hat, but that hat sits atop of his flowing locks. Now, one of the things to note about Mike is that he also comes to corporate worship sporting the same long hair and the hat. Uh, usually, usually his head covering is backwards, but that's how, the, how he comes to church. So here's the problem, though. I have a couple of verses to consider here about Mike. <laughs> Verse 4 of our text today says, Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, Mike has prayed on this very stage with a hat on. The other thing, 
Verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? (laughs) So here we have a brother that wears a hat and sports long hair coming to church every week. And this text says that it's a disgrace. So as you can see, how we understand this text not only applies to my sisters in Christ in this room, it will also determine how unbiblical my elder is. All right, so that's what we're up to today. Now, as I said, there's a bunch of questions that are going to be coming up in this passage, and we are going to spend time on some of those. But the general outline for how I want to engage uh, this type of situation about my elder, about women in the church today and church traditions and so on, this is how we're going to go about it. First, I'm going to establish some background and the main theological point in the passage. Then we'll consider a couple applications of this point for men and women within the church. And then finally, we'll consider and close by considering why preparing for corporate worship with attention to this much detail even matters, okay? So let's start with the theological point. And to understand the main theological point, it's good to have a little review, a little bit background. Verse 2 says, where he starts, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So after praising the church in Corinth for keeping some traditions, he's about to criticize them for the ones they're not keeping. And throughout the letter, Paul has been criticizing the Corinthian church for a variety of different reasons. If you remember way back before we jumped ahead to 1 Corinthians 15, we dealt with an issue uh, that was controversial in that time with whether or not uh, Christians in Corinth could eat meat that had come from animals that were sacrificed at a pagan temple. And one of the things you saw in that situation and others throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is there's often a misapplication of Christian theology that causes men and women in this church to live in a way that dishonors God, disregards their brothers and sisters in Christ, and distorts the gospel to their neighbors. So within that context, uh, that's chapters 8 through 10, with this issue of meat that had come from animals sacrificed at the pagan temple, one group said, not a big deal. After all, God is the creator of all things, including this animal that produced this meat, and there also are no real idols to be concerned about because there's only one God. These other gods are false. They're not even real. So they concluded, therefore, Christians who cannot eat this meat need to grow up, and they need to deal with it like us mature Christians deal with it. So Paul says they're in the wrong for this way of thinking about it, even though some of their understanding is built on theologically true things. He reminded us in those chapters that love is more important than knowledge. He exhorted them to be primarily concerned about how to love those who disagree with you. He reminded us that the gospel is more important than our individual rights, that our Christian witness in the world matters more than what we're free to do. And he also reminded us that our own spiritual health is more important than our freedom. So you're not just asking, what am I free to do? But what should I do because it contributes to my spiritual health and faith? Now, this framework is still very much being applied now to situations that are unique to corporate worship, specifically in the church of Corinth. And now he's he's taking on this issue of women in the church of Corinth disregarding head coverings in the worship gather in the worship gathering and he's applying this theological framework in a very similar way now we don't know for sure what the background is he doesn't unpack really what the theology is that's 
contributing to why, in this instance, women are saying, you know, doing uh, this uh, religious custom or this, this cultural custom is no big deal. But one guess that I heard uh, several commentators mention is that they believe, like all Christians do, that there's unity and oneness in Christ. We share in the same gospel, and then therefore in Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile, nor male or female, because all are one in Christ. And that's a true thing. But what might be happening is that this good theology was being misapplied to throw off some cultural norms that are unique in Corinth, which were cultural norms that celebrated gender distinctions and were visible ways of showing honor to self and to others. So with that potential background in mind, let's go to the, same, the main theological principle. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So one complexity of this verse, uh, before we get to what head may mean in this passage, is is this verse in this passage talking about men and women in general, or is it specific to husband and wives? And the reason that's a big question is because the same word that's usually translated as man and woman can be uh, translated as husband and wife, and the only way you know which is which is based on the context. So if you, some of you have uh, the English Standard Version translation, they favor husband and wife. The NIV that we're reading today favors men and women. And I can't go into all the details, but I'm going to go ahead in this passage, even though there's good arguments for both, uh, assuming that this is an application to men and women in general, rather than specifically husband and wife. But, with the, but the bigger thing to understand, because it really determines how you read the rest of the passage, is what does he mean by head? He's setting up a framework to deal with head coverings by saying the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What does Paul mean by head? And there are three ways of understanding it. One way is to understand head to mean authority. So then Paul is writing about who has authority over whom. Another way is to understand head as source or origin. So Christ is the source of man, and man is the source of woman, which is referencing God making woman from the side of man in the creation narrative. A final way to understand head is as a metaphor, much like the head-body metaphor that we find in 1 Corinthians 14 that talks about the diverse gifting of the body of Christ that's all united under the head of Christ. And it emphasizes how the parts of the body are different and diverse, but they are united with the head, Christ, who is preeminent. Within that understanding, the meaning of head is shaped by the nature of the relationship. Here's how one commentator who argues for this view translates this verse to bring this view to life. He says, quote, I want you to understand that while Christ is preeminent for man, man is foremost in relation to woman, and God is preeminent in relation to Christ. Now, all three positions and understandings have some good arguments for and against it. This unpacking of the verses uh, ahead is going to agree with the third view. 
And I was really struck by how there was a church father named John Chrysostom who uh, also believed this is the best way to uh, read this passage. And he said that the text isn't really about rule or subjection, but rather how, for example, Christ and God are connected as one yet are distinct and relate to each other in mutual love, dignity, and respect. So in this sense, man is head or foremost in that man is created first and woman comes from man, but both bear the image of God and carry out his purposes in the world. In the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we find man is created and given the task to keep and care for creation, just like a priest is called to keep and care for the temple. Men are called to ensure that God's presence is glorified and honored in the spaces and relationship that he is responsible for. But then we find out that he is incapable of fulfilling this mission and purpose by himself. The priest, in this case, the image of man as priest, needs a helper. And so in the creation narrative, when the scripture calls woman a helper, this, is, uh, this by no, in no way means that she is not as important or inferior to man. In scripture, God is a helper. He's the helper of Israel. And the Holy Spirit is the helper of the church. And why does the church, or why do the people of Israel in the Old Testament need help? Because God's people cannot fulfill God's mission without his help. And so too, men, man's call to be a priest, it cannot be fulfilled in this world without the power and help of women. So when men and women in this framework are united yet unique. They are dependent on one another yet distinct. So let me unpack those two things in the text. Men and women in the church are united and unique. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. 4 through 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for women or woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. And women, in this context, are joining together to pray and to prophesy. That's what the text is saying. Prophesy here probably means that they are encouraging one another with God's word. So for the church in Corinth, there is a tradition for men to come to corporate worship having uncovered heads and women to cover their heads. But what does that mean? And this is another one of those situations where it could go either way. It could be a piece of clothing, a veil, or a literal piece of head covering that one wears, but others understand it to mean whether or not uh, women with long hair have it up or down. And honestly, there's good arguments for both. We don't know exactly what the custom is, and the decision can go either way, all we know is that there's some type of cultural tradition that is honored in the Church of Corinth during corporate worship. Uh, I'm going to go through this passage assuming that it's referring to a head covering, but honestly, I was on the fence about this one. It could go either way, whether it's a real head covering or if it's dealing with hair that is bound up or unbound and let down. So Paul is making an argument here, if you listen to these verses, from honor and shame. He says, if a man participates in worship gathering with a covered head, then he dishonors his head. That is, he shames himself, 
the church, and the Lord. If a woman participates in the worship gathering with her head covered, then she dishonors her head. That is, she shames herself, the church, and the Lord. And then Paul makes an appeal to a, a cultural taboo at that time. He says, and some of the readers of this letter would understand it to be talking about this, that you might not think it's a big deal to have your head uncovered during corporate worship, but I know you all think it's a big deal for women to shave their head. And he's making this appeal to a cultural understanding of that day that that would be shameful, that would be noticeable, that would draw some type of attention that culture would say, like, why would somebody do that? And he's saying that uh, women who are participating in corporate worship during this time uh, that have their head uncovered, they might as well just go all the way if, they're, if they have that type of disregard for cultural norms and just shave their head because clearly they don't care about what tradition teaches and what that could communicate in corporate worship. He continues to make a similar appeal to customs and traditions in the final verses. Look at 13 through 16. He says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. That's one of those verses of why people think it could go either way. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now that phrase, the very nature of things, some understand that, that it's how God has ordered creation, and so therefore what's being talked about here transcends culture, that this cultural norm is something that we should apply today. I agree, however, with the great reformer John Calvin, who understood the phrase to mean that it is something that's common in culture, which is something that can change from culture to culture throughout history. So here, there is simply an appeal to cultural norms, and it's important to be aware of them so that we can present ourselves in a way when we gather for worship that honors ourselves, honors others, and seeks to honor God. And he also appeals to the practices of other churches, and this could mean the specific custom of head coverings, but I think it's more likely to mean the principles that are behind this appeal and how it's applied in diverse ways depending on the setting of the church. That principle is this, that the church, when it gathers in worship in unity with both men and women participating together and serving one another and ultimately to glorify God, that those are the principles that guide men and women when they gather in worship. Now, we don't have the same cultural sensitivities today. In fact, that's why this verse uh, is so debated, because we're not precisely sure what the custom is and what exactly is going on on. Some of those issues were specific to the situation in Corinth. Now, I'm aware that some still apply this text today in a very direct way. Throughout the history of Trinity, we've had folks coming in here from different denominational backgrounds, different cultural contexts, where women still wear hats or head coverings as a way uh, to embrace a tradition that shows that they are honoring God, treating Him as holy, and honoring the distinction between men and women, and a way to honor brothers and sisters in Christ that are in the pew. I think that's fine, and I am not here today to critique that. But although I don't think that's required in our cultural moment, I do think that women and men thinking about tangible ways to glorify God in every area of life is a good thing, including the way that we dress and present ourselves in corporate worship. 
that's a good thing to be concerned about. I'll give examples of clothing a little bit later, but there's other ways to celebrate um, distinctiveness and tradition and the theological principles behind it that's even outside of clothing. For example, at Trinity, we celebrate the distinctiveness of men and women by having a church office for spiritual fathers and a church office for spiritual mothers called deaconess because we think in the gathered communion of saints under the lordship of Jesus Christ that it's good to celebrate that distinctiveness and, as the theology that I laid out says, we need both men and women to participate in the mission of God to carry out the purposes of God in the world. So therefore, in our mission and our corporate worship, we celebrate and, and love that we have spiritual mothers and fathers in specific church offices. We think it's a good thing to celebrate things that are unique to, for example, mothers and fathers in general. It's a good thing to draw attention and to celebrate, for example, Mother's Day, because there's something unique about the vocation and calling of mother uh, in the world as, as mothers in a unique way contribute to human flourishing by bearing and raising children. And also another good reason why it's good to be sensitive, even if you don't agree with the cultural norms that Corinth is dealing with, to these cultural uh, realities that are distinct to gender, is that when you're sensitive and you're aware that God created us male and female, you also become aware of the unique challenges men and women face in the world and how the Christian faith can redeem those things. So again, talking about Mother's Day, it's another way to be sensitive and aware that there's also distinct pains and, 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 and a lamenting that happens on a day like Mother's Day because we lose our mothers or we have a complex relationship with our mothers or we have the, the, the grief of, of wanting to be a mother and it not happening. So those are all unique and distinct things so that when the community of faith comes together and we are sensitive and aware of not only cultural norms but the uniqueness of what it means to be male and female, then we can lean into those things together and, 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 and be able to apply the gospel in all of life. Not only are men and women uh, united in this way, but we are also dependent on one another even as we are distinct from one another. Look at verses 7 through 12. Look at verses 7 through 12 with me. A man not ought cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. At first, this argument might seem really odd. Man is the image and glory of God. That's easy enough to understand. But what about that phrase, but woman is the glory of man? That seems to miss that both men and women are created in God's image and called to glorify him. Now, of course, Paul's aware that Genesis 1 and 2 teaches that, that God created us male and female and both bear the image of God and are called to glorify him. 
But the reason for this wording is more about the ordering of creation in the creation narrative in order to show the important connection men and women have in not only glorifying God, but honoring one another. You'll note that in verse 8, it says that women, woman came from man, which is talking about how God took the rib from Adam and made Eve. But then in verse 12, it says that man is born of woman, which is speaking about what we're celebrating on Mother's Day. We're all here because a woman gave birth to us. And we were praying uh, about the service and Mother's Day in the back, and it was, uh, and Josiah, who was praying, just had this like theological point that I tend to forget that even Christ, who was fully divine, was born of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, and put on flesh and dwelt among us. So there's this framework here of both Eve coming from Adam, but then also the reality that men also come from woman in a sense. And the point that Paul is making is that in the Lord, men and women are not independent of one another. We're connected in creation, we're connected in birth, and ultimately in the Lord because everything comes from God. One of the big things that I think we struggle with throughout, his, uh, throughout our life and history is questions like, what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman? How do we understand what that means and what it looks like? And some will point to biology to explain those differences. Others will make appeals to cultural norms. And one of the things I, saw, I was thinking about this week as, as I'm thinking about this framework, that the scripture emphasizes how we're both connected as men and women, but yet distinct and diverse. And some of the big struggles that we have in our cultural moment, and even throughout different times in history, is an overemphasis and a neglect of one against the other. Sometimes you overemphasize the difference between men and women, and you get these weird, patriarchal, stupid customs that don't make sense, and it just feels like it pushes men and women away from each other. Or other times you have an emphasis in culture that seems to minimize distinctiveness, minimize differences. And then like I was saying before, there's unique callings and unique challenges that are associated with what it means to be a man and a woman that are often ignored or not celebrated when those differences are not highlighted. One of the things we see in this passage is that there is an amazing and tangible way for the people of God to learn what it means to be a man and a woman. Not that biology doesn't have something to say about it, not that you can't express these things through cultural norms, clearly Paul thinks that's okay, but one of the ways that this text is telling us to lean into this is well, if you really want to know what it means to be a man, if you really want to know what it means to be a woman and the purpose behind that, Lean into community because men and women are not independent from one another, they're dependent. You learn what it means to be a man by being in fellowship with your sisters in Christ. And you learn what it means to be a man by looking at other men who exemplify, exemplify holy masculinity in, in a very tangible and fleshy way, and then you are inspired and influenced by that, and vice versa, that women look to other men to learn what it means to be distinct from them, but then other women who embody the transformative power of the gospel in a godly and holy way, and they say, that's how I want to be a feminine or a woman is by looking at these godly women because they embody the gospel so well. 
So that's why there's always these weird debates. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? If you really struggle with that, lean into Christian community and get around godly men and women, and then you are going to learn what it means to be a man and a woman because we are not these independent beings, but we are united and dependent on one another to disciple one another and to call each other uh, to holiness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Last point uh, that I'm going to make is uh, on verse 10. Because if you're wondering, if you're looking at these verses, it's like, you haven't talked about the angels yet because they kind of appeared out of nowhere. What, does the, what, is, what is going on right there? So I'm going to use that verse to make a concluding point about preparing for the worship gathering. So a reminder, verse 10. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Seems to come out of nowhere. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of angels? What does that mean? Now, authority over her own head, that's a little bit easier to understand. It's talking about how she's taking responsibility for herself and that she does so in her life and in corporate worship. But what's the deal with angels? And as you can imagine, there's a lot of different interpretations about that. Some of them are really weird. I wish I could unpack some of them because they are strange and some of them make sense. So again, this is one of the things where it's just like you kind of have to choose to try to be able to understand the text. I agree with those who see this as expressing the belief that angels are present when Christians gather for worship. So there's a general sense that Paul is getting at here, that there's greater things going on in this moment right now than just human activity when Christians gather for worship. Yes, you're here with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, there's also a sensitivity when we gather for worship to traditions and cultural norms for the sake of loving others and glorifying God, but even more than that, that Christian worship, and this is maybe the point that's going on here, Christian worship on earth participates with the heavenly hosts in heaven who are continuously worshiping God in this moment. So, that's why it's good to ask really good questions about preparing yourself for corporate worship so that you can focus in this moment on the Lord and also loving and honoring your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, although this verse and this point is directed towards women in Corinth, it's certainly one that applies to everyone who gathers for corporate worship. Just like preparing for any meeting and gathering, are you pre- prepared to present yourself in a way that honors yourself, others, and the Lord that is fitting for that purpose or gathering? So let me illustrate this, for example. We are aware, even outside of Christian religious worship gatherings, that Presenting yourself in a way that shows that you're preparing yourself for this moment is a thing that changes depending on the context. So we had an FCA interview, so shout out to an athletic illustration once again here. You can show up as a fan uh, to an athletic event to cheer on your favorite team, and you can wear your favorite player's jersey, you can have a big sign to encourage the team, and you can paint your face or like your chest because you're planning to take your shirt off, whatever, and you can just go nuts. And like doing that and presenting yourself that way and preparing in that manner for that setting is completely acceptable because it's an athletic event and you're going there to cheer on your team. But if you show up with the same presentation and preparation to a job interview, with face painted, taking off your shirt, and screaming with a sign, it's probably not going to go very well. Why? Because a 
preparing and dressing for a job interview has different cultural norms and expectations for what that is than attending an athletic event, right? So we know this to be true in life in general, even if the cultural norms shift. Now, concerning corporate worship, does this mean that we need to wear our best formal wear when we gather for corporate worship? I would say not necessarily, but it should get us to at least think deeply about how we prepare for corporate worship, including how we present ourselves in our clothing. Here's a, here's a, here's, let me unpack this more. In one setting, for example, formal and nice clothing, when you, can, when you gather for corporate worship, can communicate how a congregation takes seriously the holiness and glory of God, that you're approaching the Lord in worship like you would a king, and you're dressing accordingly. But on the other hand, if clothing is really nice and expensive, then you may also be communicating that God is far off and distant, and maybe that you need to be of a certain socioeconomic class to approach him. In another setting, maybe casual clothing could communicate how a congregation views God as approachable and near, that corporate worship is not about how we look since God considers our hearts and not our appearance. But on the other hand, real casual clothing could also communicate that God is not Lord and he's not to be revered uh, and rather not to be taken seriously. It depends on the church tradition you're a part of. But what you're seeing here is that people can think very deeply about every aspect of preparing ourselves for corporate worship when we gather for the saints. Now, even when preparing this message, I was thinking about you all, and you're all just fine. I don't think that there's some type of radical dress code that's happening here where there needs to be church discipline, my new elder included. I think he's just fine. I don't think he's being unbiblical. In other ways, he might be unbiblical. The dress is just fine, okay? So, but one of the things that I see here, because I think there's just an acceptable range, and when we come together, uh, really the way we present ourselves shows the sensitivity to not only cultural norms, but also that we're taking seriously, that we're gathering here to worship the Lord. We're gathering here not just for ourselves, but to honor one another. We're, we're gathering here to celebrate the distinctiveness of men and women and the calling that we're united to, to engage in as disciples of Jesus Christ. And obviously, preparing for worship is not just about cultural norms, and it's not just about clothing. It's about this holistic preparation to participate in corporate worship. You're preparing not only how you dress, but with your heart, mind, and body, all of yourself in corporate worship. And the next chapters of this uh, book of 1 Corinthians are going to unpack this in different areas of corporate worship. Now, let me conclude with this story, okay? And... and uh, this is a way that I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try to take this out of maybe the gender distinction thing and, and maybe even the setting of corporate worship to try to get us to be more intentional about thinking deeply about why gathering for worship isn't just about yourself and your self-expression, but finding ways to deeply honor God and love one another. Because there's other settings where this happens. So I'm going to share a story where I did not do this well. I, for, I totally forgot about this until I was studying this passage that, that I did this to my parents, but it was a time when I was a teenager, and I was a brand new, I had a, had a conversion experience, I was a brand new Christian, and kind of had some of these like very like, like white-knuckle views, the Bible teaches this, so get in line, and, and one of them was, uh, you know, I came from maybe a more of a mainline denomination where 
uh, where you would dress up to go to church. You wear your Sunday best. And so then I was kind of reacting against that with some of this theology, be like, God doesn't care what we wear. Uh, it doesn't, it, it, he just looks at the heart, so like, it, so like, wear what you want. And I applied that theology to a very specific situation that I'm ashamed to say that I applied it to, and it was my grandfather's funeral. I was wearing just this scrubby, teenage, angsty outfit, because the Lord doesn't care what I wear, and, and my, my dad, it was his dad that passed away, confronted me. He said, this is a funeral. Can you dress up a little bit more? And he you know, gave me some just suggestions what I could wear to honor him and honor the family and remember the uh, passing of my grandfather. And I pushed back. And I said precisely this, God doesn't care what we wear, so I can wear what I want. And I realize now how incredibly insensitive that was. And we get that, right? So when you apply the theological principles of this verse, it makes like something like this come alive a little bit with even if you have like a theological principle you're trying to apply in your life, you can do so carelessly, even throwing up, throwing out like cultural norms that yeah, 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 it varies from setting to setting and culture to culture, but the Christian is aware of these things because it's not much about like what I'm free to wear, but how do I honor God in this moment Honor the people in this gathering. Honor my brothers and sisters in Christ because this gathering ain't about me. When I refused to put on something that respected that funeral, I did not honor my grandfather who passed away and my grandmother who was still living. I did not honor my parents who came from them, which in turn led to me. I'm, didn't say, I didn't communicate the reality that, that I am dependent on them. It was all about my independence and my newfound um, just uh, excitement about theological principles. The occasion for this funeral gathering was not a time for self-expression and teenage angst. Funerals to this day carry customs and traditions that are formal in order to honor the sacred moment of laying somebody down to rest. And if we are aware of that in a moment like funerals, it's a good and holy thing to prepare in the same way each and every Sunday that you gather for corporate worship. Yes, God is deeply personal, but this is not an individualistic endeavor that we do every Sunday. It's not about you. And it's about even being aware of cultural norms that you come into this space saying, my ultimate reason for being here is to make it about God and not me and make it about serving and honoring my brothers and sisters in Christ and not my freedom. And so I am going to come here every Sunday ready to do that in a holistic way that may even include you being a little bit more intentional about the way you dress, even though you guys look nice. Let's go ahead and move to a time of...